When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Maybe it's just that you don't know how to use social courtesy. Oh, that's old-fashioned. Watch how Lizzie Post and Dan Post act as host and hostess. They know that courtesy means showing respect, thinking of the other person, real friendliness. Hello! And welcome to Awesome Etiquette. Where we explore modern etiquette through the lens of consideration, respect, and honesty. On today's show, we take your questions on catty co-workers, turning down baby showers due to tradition, changing your RSVP for a postponed wedding, and donations for the deceased. For Awesome Etiquette sustaining members, our question is about talking to your partner about poor table manners. Plus, your most excellent feedback, etiquette salute, and a postscript segment on dressing rooms of old from Emily Post's 1922 edition of Etiquette. All that coming up. Awesome Etiquette comes to you from the studios of our home offices in Vermont and is proud to be produced by the Emily Post Institute. I'm Lizzie Post. And I'm Dan Post-Senning. LP, you've been doing a ton of media. <laughs> I, that, that is true. We've had a lot of media requests in the past few days. Like a ton. We started to feel it coming last week and it, it didn't stop. It's true. And that's always a real gift for us. So we're always grateful for it. But it does kind of have that like drop everything and schedule and prepare and figure it out and hop on that phone or that now video conference a lot more often to do it. But we've been hearing from all kinds of folks. Because we're not going and doing shows live, it's always a question as to whether the content that we end up engaging with will air or not. But we've talked with, so far, Good Morning America. We have an interview scheduled with the online, I think it's ABC News Live or ABC Live News. You and I, I think, have each done a couple interviews with CBC Radio, mm-hmm. but the New York Times, the New Yorker, I feel like it's, and then a whole ton of other other spots, too. But so many people asking so many questions, just like our audience. The biggest one so far has been how do we handle Zoom work calls, um, especially because, the, the, you know, so any kind of big group work call specifically and what's appropriate for how you look, how your space looks, whether or not your kids or, or pets are, are making it into the shot, you know, how you balance the one room in the house that's the quiet room when you've got four roommates, like just everybody's having the same questions. Um, how do we interact in spaces? How do we interact in the outdoor spaces that people are struggling with uh, exercising and things like that? So this was kind of, I feel like the past two weeks have been the two weeks where kind of the the realities of how people were handling the social side of this uh, really set in for people. Like, wow, I'm frustrated in these places and I'm really seeing success and even encouraged in these places. So that's a lot of the conversations we're having. 
So I have to ask, are are you happy with your contributions <laughs> to this conversation? Or do you feel like you have something to, to offer? That's such a that's such a loaded question. I feel like, are you happy with your own work? I, I do think that the Emily Post Institute has perspective to contribute just the same way when we answer questions on this show. People are seeking that kind of consideration, respect and honesty angle. And Dan, as you know, you and I spend a lot of time just observing and reflecting and keeping a finger on the pulse of, you know, American communities and and how how we feel and how we react and what we're seeing. Just the same way we did it recently with the title of um, Ms. and Mrs. and being Mrs. but keeping your maiden name to indicate that you're married, but you chose to keep your maiden name being Mm -hmm. a popular change that we're seeing happen. It's it's the same here, but it's just happening quickly. It's happening with a lot of fear and confusion in some places. And it's also happening with a lot of gratitude and a lot of mm-hmm. awareness in others. So I think that those are all themes that we talk about a lot on the show and a lot in our work, um, in our books. And so it's um, I'm, I'm really grateful that we get the opportunity to then share that with a, with a much wider audience. Um, and for me, on a very personal level, actually talking with these reporters and these producers and these anchors each day and each week, every single conversation, it starts out with kind of like a check-in of, of where are you at? How are things in your area? And it's actually, for me, I've been so grateful to get that opportunity to check in with people directly, to hear from people that, you know, don't just live in my neighborhood or in my family or social circle to find out kind of what what the finger on the pulse of other communities right now are. Um, You know, talk to a woman who was so grateful that she and her best friend had just moved in together before the lockdown started. And they uh, are fortunate enough to have a rooftop terrace and she said she's used to working from home. So for her, it felt really mild. Whereas I checked in with someone else who was really struggling with um, their best friend's parent had passed away. And the inability to connect during a time of grieving was really just um, upsetting. And so you you see all different angles right now. But the for me, I'm, I am really glad that we get the opportunity to talk to different news outlets um, about different conversations, both kind of the more serious and the more lighthearted or experiential, you know. I'm certainly glad you're out there and doing it. I, there, <laughs> there's a question that I've heard come up a lot Well, that's starting to emerge, I should say, where people say, well, when can we go back? When can we return? And the language I've been shifting in my head is that I, I don't think we're ever going to go back or return to sort of something that was, but I will definitely move forward and through, and there will be new things that emerge that will be closer to what we experienced before. And when I think about the future being something that's new and different, I want people engaged in that conversation who are thoughtful, caring, considerate, respectful, honest. And we do have a lot of choices to make and we're making them quickly. And I think that's going to keep happening. And I'm glad that people are reaching out to to get your and our advice on this. So Thank you for for diving in and doing it. (laughs) You know, that idea of a new normal, um, I think a a lot of people, it makes them very nervous and very uncomfortable. And so when I am talking to the press, we also try to remember kind of what's going to feel consistent and also what's going to change slowly as we get to that new normal. And right now, one of the big things we do talk about is that safety is, is driving our behavior right now. And that's an important thing to remember. And so when you're trying to figure out what things will look like, just think that safety will probably be what determines that. So 
Um, we just kind of have to take it day by day and see what the different, you know, restrictions and safety measures uh, we have to work with are. And that's how we then figure out how we interact and in what spaces and in what ways that really deliver those principles of consideration, respect and honesty. You know, because there's something else that I take a lot of comfort in around all of this. Oh, yeah. And that's that everybody is going through it together. And you mentioned that that the baseline now is safety. And we all share that baseline in some way. And in some ways, that's incredibly unifying. I was reflecting as you were talking about some of the different people you speak with and how you get a sense of how different people are navigating this on some of the international um, trainers that I work with. And I found myself really looking forward to calls with my trainers in Prague or Australia or um, other parts of the world. And it's amazing to me the the sense of community that comes through those conversations that it doesn't matter who I'm talking to, where they are in the world. Everybody's dealing with this in some form or another, and everybody's curious about how other people are dealing with it. So in some ways, there's a, a real shared humanity that I'm hoping is going to be foundational for all of us as a we do. A uniter rather than a divider, right? A- absolutely. And um, we always sense. take credit and criticism for being eternal optimists on this show. And I'll take both in this particular case. And I think it would be good to apply some of that optimism to the work we have in front of us today. <laughs> How about we apply some consideration, respect and honesty to it too and get to some questions. Let's do it. Awesome Etiquette is here to answer your questions. You can email them to awesomeetiquette at emilypost.com or leave a voicemail or text at 802-858-KIND. That's 802-858-5463. Or reach us on social media. On Twitter, we are at emilypostinst. And on Instagram, we're at emilypostinstitute. On Facebook, we're Awesome Etiquette. Just use the hashtag Awesome Etiquette with your social media post so we know you want your question on the show. Awesome Etiquette gets support from StoryWorth. There are some stories about your mom's life that you truly never get tired of hearing. From hilarious to heartfelt, tear-jerking to plot-twisting, mom's retelling of the events always brings a bit of joy. Just in time for Mother's Day, we here at Awesome Etiquette found the perfect gift that can capture all of your mom's stories for your family forever. It's called StoryWorth. StoryWorth helps you preserve precious memories and stories from your mom or a mother figure in your life for years to come. Here's how it works. Each week, StoryWorth emails your loved one a thought-provoking question that you get to help pick. What was your first job? Who was your first crush? (laughs) StoryWorth makes the writing process a breeze. All your loved one needs to do is to respond to the email prompt with a story. Long or short, it doesn't matter. I did this with my mom and it was really, really rewarding. You'll be emailed a copy of your loved one's responses as they're submitted over the course of the year. You'll get to enjoy their retelling of the stories, some you probably already know, or maybe the ones that you're surprised by you haven't heard before. (laughs) After that year of fun discovery and reminiscing, StoryWorth compiles your loved one's stories and photos into a beautiful keepsake hardcover book that you'll be able to share and revisit for generations to come. You can even keep a copy of the book for yourself. 
Give all the moms in your life a unique, heartfelt gift that you all will cherish for years. StoryWorth. Right now, save $10 on your first purchase when you go to storyworth.com manners. That's storyworth, S-T-O-R-Y-W-O-R-T-H dot com slash manners. It's manners with an S to save $10 on your first purchase. And now back to our show. Our show begins this week with a question about a catty coworker. Hello, Lizzie and Dan. I recently discovered the podcast. I can't stop listening to it. I'm enjoying catching up on old episodes while at work. I have a question that I hope you both can help me with about a situation that keeps coming up at work. At my place of employment, there is a big social difference between exempt staff and non-exempt staff, staff that does not have to clock in and staff that does clock in respectively. One of my coworkers, she is exempt, keeps making comments to me about non-exempt staff's work ethic as a demographic. She insinuates that the non-exempt staff do not work as hard as the exempt staff. On occasion, she even used the term clocker to insult exempt staff she deems do not pull their weight. These comments have been regularly made in front of me. What I don't think this coworker realizes is that I am in fact non-exempt. How do I politely set a boundary that I am probably not the best person she should voice these opinions to? Thank you so much in advance for your help. Working 9 to 5. Oh, working 9 to 5. That is such an uncomfortable position and such an unfortunate to thing to see in a coworker that you you clearly have some kind of rapport with if she feels she can be saying these things to you mm-hmm. to have it be a negative thing to have it be something that puts down others that defines others in certain ways that in a lot of times are out of their control that is like that's walking into one of those kind of nasty conversations or nasty moments and i can see how for you personally you're not sure how to approach it because you're in the category of people that she is insulting i think you've got two options either you you address it and you let her know that this is not only insulting behavior but it's insulting to you personally or i think you let her know that you view this language and this style of talking or this type of discrimination and type of negative talk about coworkers and a particular group of people at work that it's it's not something you're willing to engage in. So, Dan, for me, that would sound like like because I'm the person that would just say like, "Hey, I'm a I, I I'm that clocker you're talking about." Um, but I because I wouldn't mind exposing the fact that that's how I get paid, and so I would I would probably say something along the lines of, "Oh, you know, I don't know if you're aware, but I'm actually a part of that group," or "Oh." Actually, I clock in weekly, and I know you feel differently about me, so maybe it's not everyone. But I think that... Ooh, I like that. Right? Because it's a clear example of someone taking one negative situation. This person is frustrated with whatever project or whatever person they're frustrated with, and then they're applying it to an entire group of people. And I think sometimes giving someone just the reality check of, oh, you know, the person you're talking to is associated with that group. It kind of helps them go, oh, that's right. Wait, these are individual people. What I'm really, you know, in the best case scenario, the person gets reflective and goes, what I'm really upset about is this particular person. But that's like best case. But how would you do it? You often go the like more private route of things. I do. And I, I'm not always convinced that that is such a wise choice. <laughs> I think sometimes it's an easier choice personally. 
Um, and my initial instinct was that I, I would drop this information at a time when it, it wasn't immediately related to the negative comments the coworker is making. Okay. That I would find some way to let them know that I'm part of that group that they sort of confide in me and talk negatively about. And so this would be like the subtle version. Yes. And, and, I'm, and I'm not necessarily sure that I'm, I'm convinced that's the best or pr- produces the best outcomes. But I think it's an option in front of you because, as you say, it's not your job necessarily to correct or fix this person or to reveal too much about your status at a company or how you get paid. You can choose to do either of those things. I think that's entirely reasonable and appropriate. But you might choose not to. And... The part of me that is uh, conflict-averse says to myself, people do this. They get seduced by the danger of negative gossip or they they, they share negative opinions or views because they think it's a way to build rapport and connect with people. Often termed as venting. And it's not always as effective as I think people think it is or as it might feel in the moment. And I think people get in this kind of trouble not infrequently and in all kinds of different ways. And figuring out a way to let someone know they've kind of walked a little too far out that plank um, without pushing them off, giving them a chance to, to retreat and recover themselves is, is certainly a reasonable option to keep on the table as well. But I don't think it's your only option. I do like the way you say, you know, you can just address it. So what would be like your example of that subtle moment that you might seize the opportunity to to drop the hint, hey, I'm in I'm in that group that you're talking about? It's actually sort of an artful thing to bring up something that you know might have a little hook to it and to do it in a way that's really casual. And (laughs) so I'm just completely imagining flight of fancy here. Uh, the first time you see someone in the day, oh, I had to go in there so I could clock in. Can't wait till I don't have to do that anymore. Or um, it, it's, totally. it's a little drop that just gets them that information and does it in a way that's completely removed from those other comments, but cues them and sets them up to not to not do that around you in the future and to make that choice for themselves in a way that doesn't feel like they've been called out or identified as a bad actor themselves, which can make it easier to make that change. I was going to say, I think we've all been on the receiving end of that where we hear someone say something and it's it's a check in our own brains of, oh, I didn't know. Oh, oh, I wonder if that comment I said the other week. Oh, you know, and it's I think we've all done that. So to kind of allow that space, if you feel you can and for each situation, it's going to be different. Some people, it's going to be really important to stand up to those terms and and just cut off th- that kind of negative talk immediately. And for others, I think you're absolutely right. For other situations, a, a casual or a more subtle approach um, could be a, re- a really easy way to let someone know. And if they don't pick up the hint the first time, you can always move to a more direct approach later. Working 9 to 5, we hope that this helps and we hope that you have more pleasant interactions with your coworker moving forward. The snob, hurting everyone, herself, her parents, her friends, other people. What makes Sarah act the way she does? Is it a cover-up for some lack she feels in herself? Can a friend like Ron help her in any way? Our next question is titled, Shutting Down a Shower. Greetings. My husband and I are expecting a child, which comes with a lot of joy, anxiety, and cost. 
We are Jewish, and in our tradition, we do not have baby showers because there is a strong cultural taboo, which we believe in, against talking about the baby before the baby is born. However, we are pragmatic people and are preparing for our little one to arrive. Our coworkers and friends have generously asked us about a baby shower. I don't want to be rude by deferring their enthusiasm. Also, we would be very open to gifts given how much everything costs. What's the polite way to say thank you but no thank you? Is it polite to send people a link to your registry even if they don't ask? Thank you, Jewish and expecting in New York. Oh, congratulations, Jewish and expecting no. in New York. It is such an exciting time when you're expecting a new baby. I am just a hint jealous. <laughs> I also am really appreciative of a strong cultural taboo against talking about something good that's going to happen before it actually happens, particularly a baby being born. That resonates with some part of me that is always knocking on wood, not wanting to count any chickens before they hatch or bank on any good news until it's really arrived 100%. The good news is that there is a very simple etiquette answer here, and that's that it is completely okay to have a shower after the baby is born. And Absolutely. <laughs> to me, this solves all your problems. Go ahead yes. and plan it. Plan the shower. <laughs> set a date. Invite people. If, if you don't want to do even that until the baby's born, just go ahead and map it out in your mind. Have the preparation ready. And then as soon as the baby's born, invite people to that shower and enjoy the whole experience. Enjoy the gift exchange, the showering of gift, the excitement that you get sending all those thank you cards and expressing gratitude in ways that are satisfying to you and the people who attended and brought gifts. Use the registry the way it's intended to be used to make it easier for guests to come to the shower and bring something that's really going to be useful to you and isn't exactly the same thing that the person next to them is bringing. All of that good etiquette will fall right into place. It absolutely is okay to do everything and plan everything exactly as you've stated, because the one thing that I wouldn't do is I wouldn't try to send registry information out without any actual shower. And that's, you know, if whether that's before or after the baby is born, that's something that really is only tied to a shower event and should not be used if there is no actual shower but given that post-baby showers are perfectly appropriate, it means that you don't have to worry about that at all. Jewish and expecting in New York, we hope that you have a wonderful time celebrating your new bundle of joy. How do you go about being thoughtful? What do you do? Every time I try, I only make things worse. Is there some particular method of being thoughtful that works every time? Our next question is titled, I said no, but now it's a yes. Hello. I RSVP'd no to several weddings that were supposed to take place this spring due to the birth of my first child and being unable to travel. Now that the weddings have been postponed, my family will be available to attend. Can I call to re-RSVP yes? Will the bride and groom send out new invitations? What is the best practice? I would love to attend these events if I'm able but don't want to put the bride and groom out any more than they already have been by the postponement. Thanks, Emily. 
Emily, this is really smart to think about because there there are sort of a lot of question marks here. If you've already declined an invitation, can you change it later? Typically, the answer is that you want to ask first before doing so. And so I, I do think calling, getting in touch or getting in touch to ask to have a phone call about this would be great. I think that you could just do the friendly approach of, of saying, hey, I know that you postponed your wedding and... That changes things and it might even change who's on your guest list. But I just wanted to say, um, you know, things would be different. And if, if your old guest list still stands, we'd be able to make it this time, whereas we previously wouldn't. And we didn't know what to do, think or say to put you in the best position possible. You know, it's like I, I feel like it's a lot of explaining yourself, Dan, but it's like it's kind of like, I don't know what to do here. These are unprecedented times. What should what should you say? You kind of admit that. And I think that's the, the way to yeah. go. You're you're absolutely right. These are such unusual scenarios or situations, and yet all all your basic tenets still apply. The crux of it for me is that you want to communicate if you get to this point to where you're actually talking about it that you said no because of a restriction around this particular window, not because you couldn't afford the destination travel or whatever other reasons might be reason someone decline an invitation. So the reason we said no was couldn't travel springtime window around new baby. And if the wedding is happening at a different time, we would love to attend. And that information is enough to equip them to make all the choices they're going to need to make as hosts, whether they're going to reissue invites, whether they're going to contact everybody who said yes and no, whether they're going to have a smaller thing later on, which I've heard more and more people talking about as well. Audience, I would definitely use Dan's sample script over mine. It was way clearer and more concise and to the point. (laughs) Nice work, cuz. Every once in a while, and I try not to let you do all the heavy sample script lifting on this show, although you're good at it. It's a, it's a natural skill for you. The the other thought I have, just sort of broad piece of advice, is keep your ear to the ground. Uh, listen to the family network, or if this is someone you talk to, sort of keep keep your ears open and your antenna out for what you hear them planning to do as far as a postponement, a different kind of wedding, a new schedule, wh- whatever it might be. And that's going to help you figure out the right moment to make your ask or your mention um, and do it in a way that is coherent with the new plans that are emerging. Emily, we hope that this helps and we hope that you do get to go to that wedding this fall, winter, next spring, whenever it takes place. Can you think of other things you can do to make friends? Our next question is titled, Donations for the Deceased. Hi, Emily Post Institute. My mom has asked for donations in lieu of flowers to a few organizations when she passes. Do I need to let those organizations know that these are her wishes or just assume people will know to donate in my mom's name? Thank you. Anonymous. Anonymous, thank you for the question. And we're a little unclear just based on the way the question was written, whether this is a, a wish that your mother has expressed for the future, or whether this is something that you're navigating right now on her behalf. But the etiquette answer to your question is about all of the stages in the chain of getting this information out. And 
the first people that need to know are the people who would be making the donations. And the classic places to spread that word are via word of mouth when you're sharing the news uh, in person or over the phone, to include it in an obituary, and to, if you are sharing on social media or making some sort of announcement that is playing the role that an obituary would traditionally serve, but you're doing it on social media, that's another place you could include that information just to get the word out. You also want to check in with those organizations and let them know that you've done this so that they can anticipate what's coming in and they might even be able to help you with figuring out some sort of accounting of the total amount that was donated or um, getting you names of people who've donated in ways that would help you send notes of appreciation or thanks for people that have done that. Your mother's really done you a service by giving you some clear direction and that can often be a comfort either when the time comes or during a difficult time. Thank you for writing in with this question, Anonymous. It is something we do hear a lot from people, but it's kind of not one of those everyday etiquettes that you experience. So we really appreciate the chance to talk about it. I think we've got a pretty nice family. A fine, thoughtful family. Thank you for your questions. Please send us updates or feedback on our answers to awesomeetiquette at emilypost.com. You can leave us a voicemail or text at 802-858-KIND. That's 802-858-5463. You can also reach us on social media. On Twitter, we are at emilypostinst. On Instagram, we are at emilypostinstitute. And on Facebook, we are Awesome Etiquette. Just use the hashtag Awesome Etiquette with your post so that we know you want your question on the show. If you love Awesome Etiquette, consider becoming a sustaining member by visiting us at patreon.com slash awesomeetiquette. You'll get an ads-free version of the show and access to bonus questions and content. Plus, you'll feel great knowing you help keep Awesome Etiquette on the air. It's time for our feedback segment where we hear from you about the questions we answer and the topics we cover. Today we hear from Alyssa about episode 291 and Express Checkout. I am very excited for feedback about the Express Checkout situation. Hi, Lizzie and Dan. I love your podcast and have been listening to it as I do household chores during social distancing. On this week's episode, I noticed that you both took a hard line stance on the 15-item checkout lane at the grocery store. As a former cashier, I wanted to mention that the actual standards are much more lax. If you come in the lane with 20 items, it takes about 5 to 10 seconds maximum to scan those extra 5 items. So if you have 16 to 20 items and are hemming and hawing, feel free to head on in that checkout lane. P.S. 5 oranges definitely count as 5 items. Best, Alyssa. I love that. <laughs> I mean, if you want authority, you go to the authority. Oh, this is exactly what we wanted when we thought of our feedback segment. We wanted people like who are in the trenches or, you know, in this case, a former cashier being able to tell us these kinds of things. This, that's awesome. And is there any concern or fear that by making this a gray area boundary we're just letting the cat out of the bag that like the floodgates open like you're gonna just see that person with 50 items for me that the best piece of information that Alyssa's given us is it takes about five to ten seconds maximum to scan those extra five items that to me gives me a chance in my head to be like 
oh, wait, this actually would start to take longer. You know what I mean? Or, oh, you know, this, because you and I know from recording things and working with audio how long five to 10 seconds can feel sometimes. <laughs> and so when I start thinking like, oh, if I've got over those 20 items, the, those 20 seconds do start to feel like a longer time that you're waiting for someone. I know it sounds ridiculous because we're talking seconds, but that's that's how our fast brains are. I'll um, tell you where it's going to help great. me a little bit. It's yeah. going to help me when I'm standing behind someone in line and I'm counting their items and it's coming up over. <laughs> I'm just going to remember this piece of feedback and I'm going to say, listen, we're talking at most five or ten extra seconds. Totally, totally, totally. Now we hear from Joseph on episode 291, Children at Church. And I was also eager to get our feedback on this particular question. Joseph begins, as a pastor, I was interested in your conversation over kids in church One thing that was missing from your conversation was an acknowledgement that kids are also, to use your phrase, seeking to reflect and feel fulfilled during the liturgy. They often do this by asking questions, talking about what's happening, rummaging around in the pews, etc. This is not disrupting to the liturgy. It is the whole point of the liturgy. Respectfully, this is not a matter of etiquette. It's a matter of recognizing that people who we consider different from us because of age, abilities, social norms, background, etc., have the same right to fully exist in a liturgical space as we do. Best, Joseph. Joseph, I think it is a good perspective to keep in mind and to have is that kids are also well, they are welcome in these spaces often, and they are gaining quite a lot from being there, even if they aren't necessarily paying attention. And I think for me, the comparison starts to come into a place of like, you hear Dan and I often say, it's not that you can't bring your kid to a fancy restaurant, for instance, when they're a toddler or when they're when they're a baby. But it's at, at what point does are they unable to participate in a way that's um, meaningful? And I don't mean that your kid has to be sitting there facing, um, you know, facing the front and listening, you know, to every word. Like you say, they ask questions. They might be rummaging around and playing with the Bibles that are in the pew in front of them, that sort of thing. But the experience of having them there, I think, is important and it's like, the, I think we we just keep coming back to dosage, right? It's at what point does it start to become disruptive? And I think that's the point when you make considerations about leaving or you try to leave and then come back so that you can participate again. But it's the same as if I was coughing really badly. I would excuse myself, not after maybe the first couple of coughs, but when I realize I'm having a coughing fit that actually is disruptive and I need to... I need to go deal with that for a moment. Um, so that's kind of a little bit of my litmus test. Dan, you're the dad who goes to church every week. I've been rambling. What do you What do you think? I think this is a question that I wrestle with personally, and I've had discussions with the pastor at my church about, and I know he wrestles with personally. He really loves designing children's services, services for children. And it's been a running discussion for us what the cost-benefit analysis is of having children participate in services, designing services that are specifically for children so they can um, figure out where their points of access are into that that world of the grown-up service or whether you even think about something as a grown-up service to begin with. I know that reminds me of the kids' table and the grown-ups' table, and we often say, no, no, we, 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 we like to mix those tables. <laughs> exactly. And, and I love, 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 love the way this feedback challenges ideas about difference 
about mm-hmm. creating spaces that are open regardless of age, ability, social yep. background. I think particularly public spaces. when you're talking about religious services, figuring out ways to break down those barriers to um, access are so important. And I respectfully disagree that there is no question of etiquette here. I really think that yeah. whenever we're talking about people interacting and having social norms and expectations, that that is etiquette. And I don't think it needs to be sort of a stuffy, ossified, old-fashioned etiquette that says children should be seen and seen not heard. Not heard. Yeah, no. <laughs> but I do think that there's room for a dynamic conversation about the etiquette of this as well as – the nature of of religion and religious services and how they serve people, which I think are deep, deep, deep questions. Absolutely. Joseph, thank you so much for sharing your feedback with us. And thank you for sending us your thoughts and updates. Please keep them coming. You can send your feedback or update to awesomeetiquette at emilypost.com or leave us a voicemail or text at 802-858-KIND. That's 802-858-5463. It's time for our Postscript segment where we dive deeper into a topic of etiquette. And this week, we're going to step back in time and hear a little bit from Emily Post herself in the 1922 book of etiquette about dressing rooms. This can be found on page 160 of the Replica Edition. And um, I I like this section because it goes over something I think very few of us experience nowadays. Um, But you can see in movies, well, uh, movies like Julie and Julia, there's a moment where the character of Julia Child meets the other two authors that she's going to be meeting. She's in the type of dressing room that we're describing here. And then the movie How to Marry a Millionaire, when all three of the main characters uh, sort of first meet and get to know each other, it's in a lady's dressing room, a lady's powder room in a in a you know restra- fancy restaurant, that sort of thing. Well, I'm looking forward to learning something new today. Nice. Very nice. Well, this section um, is describing uh, dressing rooms when you are the host or hostess. Dressing rooms. Houses especially built for entertaining have two small rooms on the ground floor, each with its lavatory, and off of it, a rack for the hanging of coats and wraps. In most houses, however, guests have to go upstairs, where two bedrooms are set aside, one as a lady's and the other as a gentleman's coat room. At an afternoon tea in houses where dressing rooms have not been installed by the architect, the end of the hall, if it is wide, is sometimes supplied with a coat rack, which may be rented from a caterer, for the gentleman. Ladies are, in this case, supposed to go into the drawing room as they are, or go upstairs to the bedroom put at their disposal and in charge of a lady's maid or housemaid. If entertainment is very large, checks are always given to avoid confusion in the dressing rooms, exactly as in public check rooms. In the ladies' dressing room, whether downstairs or up, there must be an array of toilet necessities, such as brushes and combs, well-placed mirrors, hairpins, powder with stacks of individual cotton balls, or a roll of cotton in a receptacle from which it may be pulled. 
In the lavatory, there must be fresh soap and plenty of small hand towels. The lady's personal maid and one or two assistants if necessary, depending on the size of the party. But one and all of them as neatly dressed as possible. Assist ladies off and on with their wraps and give them coat checks. A lady's maid should always look the arriving guests over, not boldly nor too apparently, but with a quick glance for anything that may be amiss. If the drapery of a dress is caught up on its trimming or a fastening undone, it is her duty to say, Excuse me, madam, or miss, but there is a hook undone, or the drapery of your gown is caught, shall I fix it? which she does as quietly and quickly as possible. If there is a rip of any sort, she says, I think there is a thread loose. I'll just tack it. The well-bred maid instinctively makes little of a guest's accident and is as considerate as the hostess herself. Employees instinctively adopt the attitude of their employer. In the gentleman's coat room of a perfectly appointed house, the valet's attitude is much the same. If a gentleman's coat should have met with any accident, the valet says, Let me have it fixed for you, sir. It'll only take a moment. And he divests the gentleman of his coat and takes it to the maid and asks her, please, to take a stitch in it. Meanwhile, he goes back to his duties in the dressing room until he is sure the coat is finished when he gets it and politely helps the owner into it. In a small country house where dressing room space is limited, the quaint tables copied from the old ones are very useful, screened off at the back of the downstairs hall or in a very small lavatory. They look, when shut, like an ordinary table, but when the top is lifted, a mirror, the height of the table's width, swings forward, and a series of small compartments and trays, both deep and shallow, are laid out on either side. The trays, of course, are kept filled with hairpins, pins, and powder, and the compartments have sunburn lotion and liquid powder, brush, comb, and whisk broom, and whatever else the hostess thinks will be useful. I want a dressing room. <laughs> I know, right? Um, I thought this was so interesting because there were there were so many things that obviously are above and beyond um, you know, things that, that we don't have in our everyday entertaining. Most of us will never even encounter them in our lifetime. But at the same time, when you get to the end and we're talking about this small country house and you're thinking about what you might keep in a lavatory in your guest bathroom for mm -hmm. someone. And we tend to think very similar items, you know, from soaps and lotions to brushes and combs and feminine hygiene products, things like that. Really fresh towels. Really fresh towels. I might now consider things like, you know, it's not a bad idea to keep a little, a little thread on hand. I think nowadays we're a little less bothered by a hem that's come undone or or something of the like. I also think our clothing, unfortunately, in many cases is more disposable. So we don't think of it as something that's going to require mending on the spot. I was thinking about that as it was being yeah. described. How, how much a lot of this advice is built around practical concerns that involve people's wardrobes that maybe you just need a space to get a couple of those layers off. Maybe you need some assistance getting them off to even use a lavatory. Exactly, exactly. No, so it was, it was also really interesting to think about life where you have uh, people who work in your home and that you would have uh, a housemaid and that your maid would would have, oh, like here we look at, em we, we see Emily instructing 
how a homeowner might let their staff know how to interact with their guests when they come. And that to me is really interesting because that's something like very few of us experience at all. Um, and so the idea that you would take the time to learn how to instruct someone well or that you might have a certain way of doing things um, through your staff that indicate your own personal style as a host or hostess. Mm -hmm. it's, it's kind of an obvious thought, especially for those that love Downton Abbey. But at the same time, it's also like, oh, wow, that's, I mean, talk about just things that we don't deal with at all, including whether or not it's pronounced valet or valet, I, I was trying to figure out that myself throughout reading this. <laughs> well, and, and I sort of stop you and I ask the question and you're like, I think there might be different pronunciations depending Maybe? on the role. <laughs> Maybe. I have no idea. I had always heard valet for, um, you know, valet service when someone's picking up their car and that sort of thing. But then when I watched Downton Abbey... Valet was a with the T on the end started to be familiar to my ear, and I was like, "But that seems to be for someone who's helping you get dressed." And so I'm not totally sure, guys. Maybe it's a French British <laughs> thing as opposed to a what role you play thing. Could be, could be. I have no idea. We this is one where we do the we do the post postscript lookup. <laughs> I'm reminded a little bit of. Um, a story that we've heard told about Emily Post, how focused she was on punctuality, that yeah. one of the, the stories that was sort of apocryphal in, in our family growing up was that Emily was so focused on the timing of a meal that her, her house staff would have everything prepared and they would wait just outside the door till the clock struck the minute that food was meant to be served or dinner or breakfast or lunch was meant to begin. And then they would enter on time in the moment. And I remember a discussion between my mother and my grandfather where my mother was asking my grandfather, well, what would happen if you were late to dinner with your grandmother, Emily Post? And he just said, you weren't. And she said, well, what if something happened? What if your day went like this and you were late? And he just said, you weren't. That did not happen. And, but what if it did? No, it did not no, happen. No, like it didn't happen. You either didn't, you canceled or you didn't show up late, basically. But it like. was a point of personal <laughs> style. And it was reflected in all the people that she worked with on a daily basis and became a signature style, something we're talking about 70, 80 years later. Totally. We see that same kind of style when Emily discusses in another section of the book, lateness to the dinner table, and that, you know, you do your best to offer your guests, uh, that the guests should offer to join the meal where it is, and a wonderful host will, you know, absolutely try to catch them up to the meal so that they can have the full thing. And then she tells a story of one of her friends in particular for whom everyone knows you you just if you show up late this is what will happen there is no host guest dance in that moment it's just like <laughs> we move on in this way her punctuality sometimes i wonder if emily was writing about herself in that moment hey. <laughs> her punctuality was was there but it does it paints a really interesting picture it's kind of nice to fantasize about a, a different way of entertaining i don't know about you dan but I know you y'all have a big closet right when you walk in. And when I was growing up, my, my house had a big closet right, right when you walked in the front door. My current house doesn't have that. And plenty of houses I've gone to don't have that. Typically, it's 
oh, throw your coats on the on the bed in the master bedroom or in the guest bedroom or in the that room over there. And that's kind of what we do now. I always thought it was classy. My grandmother actually had a coat rack she could bust out for like Easter celebration where she had 30 people coming over, you know. Didn't have to rent it. <laughs> Yeah, didn't have to rent it from the caterer. <laughs> no. It's true. These traditions live on. And you can definitely see echoes of what we do today in some of this more um, detailed description from the past. Lizzie Post, thank you for taking us on a little trip back in time. And I have a homework assignment. I'm going to watch How to Marry a Millionaire because that is a movie reference that I need to get on board with. I, I love that one. That's a really fun movie. <laughs> and it's got some good Vermont stuff in it, too. <laughs> oh, wait. Is it Vermont or Maine? I forget. But it's it's skiing in the Northeast at one point. <laughs> well, I'll, I'll, I'll allow for some latitude across the New England states. <laughs> Very nice. Correctness in dress, like other matters of etiquette, is something which has to be learned. One needs to check on himself and inquire from those who know what is correct. We like to end our show on a high note, so we turn to you to hear about the good etiquette you're seeing and experiencing out in the world, and that can come in so many forms, including from before we all started social distancing, and today... We hear from Danielle. Hi, AE team. I work in food and beverage at a major sports and entertainment venue in a large city. The other day, I was walking on the event level, the basement of the stadium, and another woman was a few steps in front of me pushing a rolling rack with platters of food, wrapped, of course. I saw, in what felt like slow motion, the wheels on the rack roll under themselves and the entire rack come crashing to the ground. She took a moment to take in the truly unfortunate moment she just experienced, and in that moment, myself and nine other employees came to her aid and righted the rack and picked up all of the pans and platters on the ground. Fortunately, none of the platters broke open. When I saw this unfold, I really thought she would have been left to pick everything up herself, and it really warmed my heart that this group of people descended upon her almost instantaneously to help a fellow employee. Best, Danielle. Danielle, thank you. That I, th- those moments are encouraging when group group help just like materializes and makes someone's tough moment just easier. And you never know where it starts. Maybe everyone right? simultaneously had the same idea, or maybe one person's good instinct just inspired eight other people just instantaneously. I, I, it is amazing the impact that we can have. What a small good deed can mean to others around us. Indeed. Danielle, thank you for sharing. And thank you for listening. And thank you to everyone who sent us something. And thank you to everyone who supports us on Patreon. Basically, thank everyone everywhere. And please connect with us and share this show with friends, family, and coworkers, and on social media. You can send us your next question, feedback, or salute by email to awesomeetiquette at emilypost.com. You can leave us a voicemail or text at 802-858-KIND. That's 802-858-5463. On Twitter, we are at emilypostinst. On Instagram, we are at emilypostinstitute. And on Facebook, we're Awesome Etiquette and the Emily Post Institute. Please consider becoming a sustaining member by visiting patreon.com slash awesome etiquette. You can also subscribe to the ads version of our show on iTunes or your favorite podcast app. And please consider leaving us a review. Our show is edited by Chris Albertine and assistant produced by Bridget Dowd. Thanks, Chris and Bridget. Thanks, Chris and Bridget. <laughs>